0: welcome this is the retirement lifestyle advocates radio program we call it rla radio i'm your host dennis tubergen glad you decided to tune in today hey i've got a lot to talk about today that will potentially significantly affect your retirement if you aspire to have a stress free stress-free and a satisfying retirement then what i'm going to talk about today is going to be very important to you. In fact, joining me on segments two and three today uh, is Mr. Alistair McLeod. I caught up with Alistair uh, from his offices in London this past week, had a terrific conversation with him, and we're going to talk to him about the world economy and managing money in the current environment. And it seems that things are clicking along pretty well But if you take a look at what many of the aspiring political candidates are talking about, those who would like to be leader of the free world the next time around, there is a lot of new programs actually being proposed. And when you look at new programs and the cost associated with them, when you look, for example, at Medicare for All, that's a $30 trillion program. The Green New Deal, uh, that's a $90 trillion program. And you compare the cost of those programs with financial realities. The financial reality is that we have a $200 trillion plus fiscal gap in the United States. That's the amount of money that we would need to have in hand today to meet all future promised obligations as well as to deal with the national debt. It's a big chunk of money. So what a lot of these politicians are proposing is something called Modern Monetary Theory to fund this. And simply put, here's what Modern Monetary Theory means and why it's important to you. MMT, or Modern Monetary Theory, is really not modern, and it's really not theory either. It's been tried many times historically, always with the same outcome. Modern Monetary Theory simply just says, if you can print your own currency and inflation is under control, then government debts don't matter. You can just print the money that you need. Well, you can for a while. But at a certain point, it always ends badly. In my book, New Retirement Rules, and the third edition of New Retirement Rules will be released here in the next couple months, I give the example, there are many examples, but one of the examples that I talk about is John Law, who was France's central banker in the early 1700s. Now, Law was a very interesting character. Uh, Law actually was Scottish, and he was born into the money business. His father was a successful banker and goldsmith. Law began working as an apprentice in the family business at the age of 14, but at the age of 17, when his father died, he inherited the family fortune. Suddenly, banking didn't look so great. Goldsmithing didn't look so great. Law actually became a professional gambler. And through a series of events, which I don't have time to talk about here, but the story's fascinating, he ended up in France. And one of his gambling buddies was a guy by the name of Duke de Orleans, who was actually also the nephew of the king, Louis XIV. And Law became a pretty serious armchair economist. And he would talk with the Duke about his economic theories as they played poker. Well, when Louis XIV died, who was incidentally a really, really popular king because he gave away a lot of benefits. As a result of giving away a lot of government benefits, there was a lot of national debt when Louis XIV died and because Louis XV was only seven years old when his father died, the duke, the king's nephew, was appointed regent of France, and he appointed John Law to be the central banker of France. Now, Law implemented what we might call today modern monetary theory. Paper currency was not in use at the time. However, Law and the duke decided to deal with this debt, it would be easier to print money or create money than it would be to raise taxes or cut spending. After all, cutting spending would make the populace angry. So they decided to mint new coins that contained 20% less precious metal content than previously issued coins. Now, this was the 18th century equivalent of money printing. French citizens immediately figured out that they should hoard the old coins and spend the new ones because the old ones were worth more intrinsically or tangibly. So that's what they did. Well, to combat the hoarding of these coins, the duke-in-law said, if we catch you hoarding the coins, it's illegal and we'll put you in jail. Well, the next step of this 18th century version of modern monetary theory had the Duke and Law printing paper currency. And the paper currency was guaranteed to be exchangeable for the coins that contained some precious metals. Well, that made the paper currency more popular than the coins because it was simply easier to use. You could carry it around, you could fold it, it wasn't as heavy. And anytime you wanted to, you could exchange it for the real money. Well, it didn't take long, and they began to print more of this paper currency than they had precious metals to back up. And it seemed like as they printed it, things got more prosperous. A stock known as the Mississippi Company went up 1,900% in just one year. Real estate was booming. Real estate values went through the roof. High-end luxury items were being sold before they hit the shelves. And a bubble had been created the same way bubbles are always created. Yet, in the middle of this bubble, not many people recognize that it was actually a bubble. Well, Law and the Duke saw what prosperity had been created through the printing of currency, and they were obviously happy. And the reasoning was, if some currency printing had produced these results, then more currency printing would produce even better results. After all, modern monetary theory reasons that, As long as inflation is low and you can print your own currency, debt doesn't matter. However, as always happens, when you're creating money out of thin air, when you're creating fiat currency and exchanging exchanging it for something tangible, sooner or later confidence in that currency erodes. Now, assuming modern monetary theory is tried again to even a greater extent than it already has been, We know from studying history what the outcome will be. That's why it's important to use a two-bucket approach. Some of your assets need to be obviously invested in paper wealth because that's what you spend. And we believe that that bucket should contain stable paper wealth, vehicles that aren't going to be affected when these bubbles burst. But the second bucket should contain real, tangible wealth. It should contain real stuff because at a certain point in the future, nobody knows exactly when that is. And if someone says they know exactly when it is, I certainly wouldn't believe them. But at some point, real tangible wealth will take the place of paper wealth. We know that always happens. We just don't know when it's going to happen. So our take is it's really smart to consider having your assets in two different buckets, the stable paper wealth bucket and the real tangible wealth bucket. Now, we have more resources available on our website. If you'd like to learn more, all you have to do is visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. There are free resources there. Remember, nobody cares as much about your money as you do. So check out the resources and educate yourself. I'll be back after these words with Alistair McLeod. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, Just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. pleased to have back on the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program today, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money. You can learn more about his work and Gold Money at goldmoney.com. And Alistair, welcome back to the program.
1: Hello, Dennis. My pleasure.
0: So Alistair, for our listeners that may not be familiar with what Gold Money actually does and why they exist, could you fill them in, please?
1: Of course. We buy and sell and store precious metals for our customers outside the banking system. And uh, so we act as custodians and uh, we can offer storage in secure vaults in a number of locations around the world. And on top of that, we um, offer a facility to be able to use gold and silver as money. So if you store gold or silver or uh, platinum group metals with us then uh, you can have a debit card which you preload from uh, your precious metals and spend it and uh, i use i use mine all the time and we do that in a number of currencies uh, incidentally so uh, we can offer you a card in us dollars um, sterling euros i think swiss francs as well <laughs> so there that's it's basically The way we look at gold is gold actually is money rather than an investment, and uh, it should be used as money. And um, that's what I do all the time.
0: Well, Alistair, forgive me for saying so, if you would, but I think when you uh, look at monetary policy around the globe, uh, those who view gold as money, at least uh, at the present time, might be in the minority. So what's your take on monetary policy around the globe? Well
1: can I can I just correct you there to start with? I think we in the West um, tend not to view gold as money because um, we've had it uh, drummed out of our brains if you like that it ever was money. but if you go to Asia they still see it as money um, so uh, and that's at least half the world's population. So I think it is um, it is if you like, Uh, something that people in America some selling people in Britain and various parts of the European continent um, no longer understand so um, no gold is very definitely money and the majority of the world I think still understands that and the central banks as well incidentally otherwise they wouldn't have it in their reserves
0: so Alistair how do you uh, uh, square uh What's happened here in the West? To to to, and I stand corrected by the way. Which uh, that's not even the first time today I've been corrected. So I'm used to it. Um, but, but let me ask you: um, If the central bankers, uh, particularly in uh, you know the Bank of England, uh, the 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 Federal Reserve, if they view gold as money, how do you square uh, all the quantitative easing, money printing, whatever you want to call it, that's taken place?
1: Well, I think it's one thing to uh, observe that gold is money. And of course, um, we all remember, um, you know, sort of, Various central banks saying that gold is just a pet rock and it's just an a- historical accident and it's just a commodity. Um, actually, the reason they don't like gold um, as circulating currency is that they can print circulating currency at will. The one, uh, um, if you like, monetary uh, facility that a central bank has is basically to turn on the inflation taps and to encourage banks to expand bank credit. and. Um, um, every now and then they have to start uh, restricting that because prices start rising. Uh, and when they do that, of course, they then trigger a bit of a credit crisis. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, the answer to your question, quite simply, is that uh, central banks and governments, given the facility to issue currency at no cost whatsoever, uh, find it extremely hard to resist the print button.
0: So, Alistair, looking at the... Global levels of debt that exist. Uh, don't you think there's probably more of this hitting the hitting the print button that's going to occur moving ahead?
1: Uh, yes, uh, that that is absolutely certain. Uh, the timing of it uh, really is a cyclical thing because by printing money and uh, encouraging the banks to uh, uh, expand their credit early in the credit cycle they do create a cycle of credit and inevitably uh, as that cycle progresses you come to a point where the cycle starts turning the other way and uh, then uh, the amount of debt that is outstanding then gets threatened by the tendency of an economy to contract because unless you've got expanding business to uh, finance uh, the expanding debt, you end up with a bit of a credit crunch. And that periodically happens, and it happens because the central banks start and continue to run a credit cycle. They call it a business cycle, incidentally, Dennis, which um, is blaming it on you and me as ordinary people. Uh, But in fact, the origin of it is, is the central banks themselves. And that's why it's a credit cycle rather than a business cycle.
0: Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at GoldMoney. You can learn more about his work at goldmoney.com. So, Alistair, based on that last comment, um, are we going to be seeing a repeat of the financial crisis that we saw a little over a decade ago? Meaning, are we going to have more banking failures and then all the fallout that goes with that?
1: Well, it is inevitable, because if you have a cycle, uh, then by definition, as long as the cycle continues, uh, then you are going to have a repeat of the crisis. The question, I think, um, which we should really consider, is it likely to be uh, uh, less violent than the last one, or is it likely to be more violent? And as a further question, what form will it take? Because the credit uh, credit crisis stage of the cycle isn't necessarily the same from one cycle to another. This time, um, as you pointed out, there has been a rapid expansion of debt since the last cycle. And in fact, uh, as uh, central banks have suppressed interest rates, it's encouraged governments to continue to uh, expand their debt, which has all been financed by printing money. Uh, through quantitative easing. I mean, certainly in the, in, 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 uh, the European Union, this is almost entirely financed by uh, the uh, expansion of the ECB's um, uh, balance sheet. So um, they have been printing money in order to expand the debt. Now, at some stage, you will find that the inflationary implications of that printing begin to impact on prices The origin of a general uh, uh, rise, if you like, uh, or sorry, a rise in the general level of prices is always monetary. And it's monetary either from an increase in the quantity of money in circulation being spent into circulation, or alternatively, it is because people who have got money decide to adjust uh, the amount of money that they own relative to the things they purchase. And if they start winding down their cash reserves, then the purchasing power of that money falls. So um, that, if you like, is is what leads to the credit crisis developing, uh, when the whole thing becomes unsustainable. Now, this time round, we've got an additional problem, uh, and that is that, Uh, America has, uh, for various reasons, uh, decided to uh, go into a trade war, or rather trade protectionism, uh, particularly against China and to a lesser extent against the European Union. Uh, The problem with this is that it's effectively put a break on uh, the expansion of global trade. And if anything, global trade appears to be beginning to contract rather than just standing still or, or expanding. Now we do have a precedent for this in the past. If you go back to 1929, in October 1929, I think the 30th of October to be precise, uh, the Congress passed the uh, provisions of the Glass-Steagall—not sorry, not the Glass-Steagall—the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. And that Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act um, uh, brought it, it increased tariffs on on a very large range of goods being imported into the United States. The effect of that was foreseen by people in the stock market, and in that October, talking about October nineteen twenty nine, from top to bottom, the Dow Jones index fell thirty four percent. There was a bit of a recovery after that, as um, you know, the, if you like, that enormous fall was was uh, um, absorbed, if you like, into the the market as a whole. Uh, President Hoover then signed Smoot-Hawley into law, uh, I think it was the following uh, June, and uh, by then the market had started coming off again, and uh, market historians will tell you that it eventually fell to a low in 1932, and it lost, uh, I think, something like 85% of its value from the top. That was the Wall Street crash, and it wiped out an awful lot of people. The coincidence that I mentioned is the coincidence of Smoot-Hawley hitting the top of the credit cycle in 1929. Today, we have um, uh, uh, tariffs uh, being threatened, being introduced, whatever it is, certainly less violent than the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, but at the top of an even more inflationary cycle So it is the coincidence of those two things, which in my opinion, is something that should worry us. And that's something which, um, you know, very little research has been done uh, on, but um, I'm convinced that it's a combination of those two cyclical events, uh, which could actually prove to be very dangerous uh, to uh, the valuation of uh, financial assets as a whole and uh, the stock market in particular.
0: And, you know, Alistair, uh, when you go back and look at that period of time in the early 30s when world trade contracted and the stock market crashed, uh, the U.S. government at that point, to to stay on this topic, uh, wasn't broke. As as I recall, and I'm I'm pulling numbers off the top of my head, so it's it's fine if you need to correct me if I can, but I, I think that... There was debt to GDP on uh, as far as the U.S. government debt was concerned of about 20 percent. And today we're well over 100 percent. So, you know, doesn't that mean that the the government's not going to be as equipped uh, to be able to deal with it this time around? I mean, the the credit card at this point is essentially maxed.
1: I think that's a very good point. Uh, certainly, that difference is there, and another difference is that in the 1920s, uh, people, um, you know, ordinary people had savings. Nowadays, they don't. They they have replaced savings with the old credit card, and consumer debt. So uh, it is there are there are some fundamental differences between the financial situation in 1929 and the situation today. Now, having said that, when you look at the financial situation today, I would say that there is nothing really. Better about it than in 1929. There is, however, one big difference which does affect the way this uh, um, is likely to evolve. In 1929, the dollar was on a gold standard. In other words, you, as an individual, could go along to the local branch of the Fed or your own bank as acting as agent for it, and uh, give them your dollar notes and get gold in return for it. You cannot do that today. The currency is completely fiat, in other words that it has no backing, and therefore uh, a real financial crisis on the scale of 1929 to 1932, or as you have rightly suggested, potentially worse because of the overall debt situation. What is likely to happen is that the currency will take up a lot of the adjustment uh, as uh, the situation evolves, which couldn't happen in 1929 to 32, because the dollar was underwritten by the gold standard. This time, there's nothing to stop it falling. And the reason it'll fall is that there is, going back to a point we were talking about earlier, the only thing that the central banks know is to hit the print button when they run into trouble. And then you get into the stage where you could easily end up uh, uh, sliding into um, a sort of almost towards hyperinflation. Um, That would happen if the general public lost faith in the full faith and credit of the US dollar. And uh, it's not just the US dollar, it's a problem around the world. I think the problem is less of a problem, perhaps in China, and which, which might surprise some of your listeners, uh, and Russia, uh, because uh, Russia, as, you, uh, as uh, we're all aware, has uh, actually been getting rid of its dollars uh, and uh, accumulating gold bullion as part of its reserves. And China, um, uh, we know, we can be be very sure, but we don't know the quantities, we can be very sure that China has a lot of gold bullion as a nation, as a state, um, not held on reserves, but held, if you like, off balance sheet in that sense. It's spread around the Communist Party, the People Liberation Army, and so on and so forth. So, it's in a number of accounts, it's just not held as reserves. Furthermore, they've been encouraging their people to accumulate uh, physical gold. And so much so that since ownership of gold was legalized in 2002, the ordinary Chinese citizen uh, has now accumulated a total of an estimated 17,000 tons of gold. That's just the public. And um, there's a continuing process. They're continuing to accumulate it at roughly 2,000 tons a year.
0: Incredible. Well, that is going to have to be the end of our first segment. However, stay with us because Mr. Alistair McLeod will join me again after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tuberg, and joining me on today's program is Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, Mr. McLeod is the head of research at Gold Money, and you can learn more about gold money at goldmoney.com, and I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, Alistair, uh, you know, we talked a bit about uh, the accumulation of gold that was taking place in uh, China uh, at, at, at various levels of society. Russia has been dumping U.S. dollars and has been accumulating gold bullion. Um, Is this the beginning of the end as far as the U.S. currency is concerned as a reserve currency worldwide?
1: Uh, It's definitely going to have an effect because one of the objectives that China has is to do away with the dollar uh, as much as she can uh, for her foreign trade now her foreign trade involves a number of things it involves everything from the purchase of commodities the importation of commodities to the export of finished goods Um, now she wants to wean herself off the dollar because um, she sees uh, america if you like as a geopolitical adversary. I'll say adversary rather than enemy because I think that is slightly less contentious. They're not enemies anyway, but uh, there is a a sort of underlying geopolitical financial conflict going on the whole time between America and China. And we see this uh, uh, spilling over into the industrial area, for example, uh, the imprisonment of uh, uh, the CFO of Huawei in in, uh, um, uh, Canada uh, pending extradition. Um, America telling all her allies, do not buy Huawei. If I can say it, Huawei's 5G uh, uh, equipment, because uh, there could well be spyware that, in there. So you've got all this sort of stuff going on in the background. Meanwhile, basically, what China and Russia are trying to do is they are putting together um, a loose federation, if you like, of Asian states, uh, which will work together in terms of trade. And uh, those Asian state states uh, include not only China, Russia, but also in India, Pakistan, um, Iran. Um, who else? I mean, they're, they're, they're all the various states. You know, the sort of uh, Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and all the rest of it. All those states. Belarusia is due to join, and so on. So we are actually looking at an association um, in Asia. Uh, of around about half the world's population. Now, the reason this is important is because that is the area which China sees as being uh, her industrial heartland, if you like. That is her development objective. She is um, uh, embarking on uh, an industrial revolution for the whole of Central Asia, for all those people. That is where the economic growth in the world is. Now, of course, with this economic growth goes power, for example, she is the largest buyer of commodities in the global markets, and uh, she has virtually tied up the whole of sub-Saharan Africa as providers of um, uh, industrial uh, and industrial raw materials, and and uh, also, uh, you know, sort of maize and things like that, as well as that. She's working with Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, various other states in in the Middle East. She sees that as part of her, um, if you like, her her sort of Asian area, the greater Asian area. Now, this, um, I think from the point of view of Washington and Langley, they look at this and say to themselves, you know, this is something which is getting beyond our control. And I think that explains quite a lot of the sparring, if I can put it that way, over trade and so on and so forth between America and China. But believe you me, China is absolutely determined to uh, uh, take Asia very much into the 21st century, and her technology is now pretty much as good as anyone else's. It's really a remarkable, remarkable uh, recovery from uh, the days of Mao Zedong when uh, this all started in 1978.
0: So, Alistair, when, when you talk about uh, China's um, economic ambitions, uh, their, their, their uh, ambition to play this leadership role, which they're, they're, they're bringing to fruition, do you see that at some point China or potentially Russia will re- reinstitute or reimplement the gold standard with their currencies?
1: Um, I think so, yes. There are a number of factors here. Um, First of all, what we know, we know that Russia has weaned herself off the dollar. When she gets dollars from selling oil, she converts it into gold. She keeps her Um, dollar reserves, if you like, uh, at a pretty low level. Uh, As far as China is concerned, China has in effect uh, cornered the global bullion market. I mean, the physical bullion market. Uh, And she's done this basically uh, by being the largest buyer of gold um, through the Shanghai Gold Exchange, I believe that she has accumulated very, very substantial undeclared gold reserves uh, since she started on this uh, process back in 1983. And remember that we went through a fairly protracted bear market when a lot of bullion changed hands. She has become the largest gold money miner in the world as well, producing around about 430 tons per annum. I mean, there. Is there is no doubt at all that her efforts to corner that you know, the physical gold market have been remarkably successful. And if you look at the London Metal Exchange, which improved, which introduced precious metals contracts, that is owned by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And the Hong Kong Stock Exchange basically would not have bought the London Metal Exchange without the say-so of Beijing. So you can see that there's all these little tentacles, if you like, point towards um, uh, Russia and China working, colluding together to basically corner the gold market. Now, I think the original thought in this was a Marxist one, and that is that capitalism destroys itself. That is the first thing. If you go to uh, a Marxist university and learn economics, that's pretty well the first thing they they, they drum into you. Now, if you're going to, uh, uh, if a capitalist country is going to destroy its economy, then uh, obviously its currency goes with it. And so we see here, um, uh, the situation, as far as a Marxist uh, uh, economist is concerned, seems to be evolving very much in the direction uh, uh, which he was taught at university. So you know, it's just sitting there and looking at it, you can see that the sensible thing to do is to continue to accumulate gold and at some stage link your own currency to gold. Now, I think that uh, that is likely to happen uh, for one very, very important reason, and that is that a purely fiat currency, when it faces rising prices and rising interest rates, the only uh, point at which you can control the cost of borrowing is to move from a fiat currency onto a gold-backed currency. Now, it obviously has to be credibly gold-backed. But if you can do that, then what you're going to reflect in terms of your interest rates is the interest rate on gold, which translated into uh, um, a currency, if you like, um, and debt raising by the state, would mean that the state uh, could raise uh, funds at something like two to four percent interest rate. Now, uh, if um, uh, uh, we do have this deterioration in credit uh, and uh, we have the pressure on pure fiat currencies, you can see that while the US government and the Eurozone governments and indeed the British government and the Japanese government end up in the most horrific debt trap With interest rates rising to the point where suddenly the whole thing is getting horribly out of control and the central bank can no longer control it, the lucky guys in that world are the ones who do have control over public spending and at the same time have the gold, if you like, to back their currency. And that principally is where... Um, uh, the members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are trying to get to. Russia is almost there pretty well. I think China is there. Note that India is buying gold as well. Note also that the Eastern European countries like Hungary and Poland and so on are beginning to accumulate gold because they can see what's happening to the east of them and they're going to be big trading partners in the future. So the world, I'm afraid, is moving away from the Bernanke gold is just a historical accident <laughs> Gold, I think, is going to become central to uh, the survivor currencies uh, after this credit crisis.
0: Well, Alistair, I have so many questions to ask you, and I don't have much time left, so I'm going to pick my best two here. Um, don't you think, and, and would you agree, that it makes sense that when we have this global reset as the the, the global economic system kind of collapses under all this, uh, this this debt that exists, it's an unpayable level of debt. That at that point, it would be a perfect time to come in and maybe link uh, your currency to gold. Wouldn't that be a good catalyst and a good time to do that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm afraid it's crisis first, solution second, because it's not just a question of saying, uh, right, okay, we've got enough gold to link the currency to the gold. So we're going to make a declaration that, you know, say $10,000 an ounce, um, that's going to be our exchange rate. And, uh, you know, you can come in and swap your dollars for gold at $10,000 to an ounce or whatever the figure is. What you have to do is also you have to demonstrate that your public spending is under control and not going to increase in the way in which it is certainly increasing with a welfare state. The problem with a welfare state is that the, the, the state itself is taking on all the liabilities of society, which, and it cannot afford to pay for them without printing money. So in order for a gold exchange standard if you like or even just a, a you know a, a proper gold standard uh, to to stick you have got to address the spending side as well and this is why i say it's crisis first solution second i think politically i just cannot see how uh, any welfare state in the west can possibly uh, get its welfare spending, its future welfare spending commitments under control without the sort of shock that will make people
0: wake up and understand the free lunches are over. Well, Alistair, last question. Uh, With all the demand we're seeing for gold around the globe, uh, what would be your explanation as to why gold prices have not risen more dramatically? And then what would be your forecast for gold moving ahead?
1: Um, I think the, the, the reason that gold prices haven't moved uh, ahead dramatically is that I don't think it's been in anyone's interest, apart from speculators, if you like, on the bull tag, to see the gold price higher. Um, uh, just bear in mind that uh, if the gold price rises as far as the Fed and as far as the Treasury, US Treasury are concerned, um, you know, this, if you like, is a Is a black mark for the dollar. Though they they, they deny that uh, gold has any monetary role, uh, as far as the central banks are concerned, they don't like to see a gold price rising. They're quite happy to hold it as part of a portfolio of reserve assets, but they don't want to see it rising. Now, the other thing is that uh, countries like China and Russia, China does not want to rock the international boat. She doesn't want to start World War III by uh, bankrupting America or being seen. To be bankrupting America, and uh, equally Russia, <clears throat> I think uh, would far rather continue to accumulate gold at lower prices uh, um, uh, rather than see higher prices. In other words, I can see that there are strong institutional reasons why the gold price is not being run up. At some stage, I think the dam will break. Um, I don't uh, for I don't make um, uh, forecasts of uh, prices. All I can tell you is that. Uh, for uh, the quantity of fiat dollars in existence, by my calculations, to cover them uh, just by one half with uh, physical gold bullion, and uh, uh, this this implies a rate of somewhere between ten and twenty thousand dollars an ounce. Now. I don't think that necessarily is where gold is going to go. I wouldn't uh, wouldn't, uh, take that as a price forecast. But what we can see is that uh, as things develop, um, as the credit cycle develops, if it undermines the uh, the purchasing power of paper currencies, then we will see the gold price measured in those paper currencies rise substantially. What will be happening is the purchasing power of the currencies is falling rather than gold rising. Though there will be an element of gold rising because very few people in the West own sufficient gold to hedge the possibility of a full-blown credit crisis developing.
0: Well, the clock tells me, Alistair, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. He is the head of research at Gold Money. Uh, You can check out their website at goldmoney.com. And uh, it's amazing to me how fast time goes when, uh, when I have a chance to talk with you, Alistair. So thank you for joining us today from the UK.
1: That was very much my pleasure, Dennis.
0: We will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. You obviously have great listening taste because you're continuing to listen to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Couldn't help but compliment you on your taste in radio programming. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today, and thanks again to our special guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod, for joining us today. You know, there's a lot to be said about where we store our economic energy. If you think about it, that's really what currency is. It's a place we store our economic energy until we're ready to deploy it. So you go to work, you make some money, you have two options. One, you can spend that money right now. You can deploy your economic energy right away. Or secondly, you can save it and decide to deploy it later. And essentially, those of you that are planning for retirement and saving money in a 401k or IRA, that's what you're doing, you're intending to deploy that economic energy later. Now, because of all the money creation that's taken place, the currency just doesn't buy now what it did even a few short years ago. And that's why when many people do retirement income planning, they have to take into account how much less the money will buy. In fact, they put in what we call an inflation adjustment. Well, this whole inflation adjustment really skews how economic data is reported as well. In fact, I would argue, and I'll demonstrate to you in this short segment, that often when it comes to the economic data that's reported in terms of dollars or another fiat currency, you really can't believe what you hear. Now, I used this example a few weeks ago on the program, and I'm going to use it again. If you look, for example, at real estate prices, the average house in 1971, sold for $23,400. That same house today sells for $240,000 approximately. Well, what can you conclude from that? Since 1971, that's 48 years ago, the average price of a new home in the United States has increased tenfold. So you automatically assume that real estate appreciated, right? Well, it did if you stored your economic energy in dollars because it takes 10 times as many dollars to buy the average new house today as it did 48 years ago. But what if we set the dollar aside a minute? What if we use some other measuring stick to determine the value of real estate? I know that's kind of a weird thing to think about, but just bear with me for one minute. What if we priced that new house in gold? See, in 1971, if you had 670 ounces of gold, you could sell that gold and you would have enough money. You'd have $23,400 and you could buy that new house. Well, today, you only need 185 ounces of gold to buy that same average new house. So while it takes... 10 times as many dollars it takes between 25 and 30% of the gold to buy that house. Now, the same is true when you talk about economic data, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But with spring around the corner, I did a little bit of research. I sacrificed and went to price how much a new Chevy Corvette would be, because wouldn't that be a lot of fun to drive around this spring. Well, the base model in 2019 with no options is $55,900. That means you would need 43 ounces of gold to buy a new Corvette today. In 1973, a new Corvette Stingray base model was $5,500. It would have required 150 ounces of gold to buy the same thing then. So when you look at economic energy and look at economic output, typically economic output is measured in terms of gross domestic product. And the gross domestic product is just the total dollar value of all goods and services produced in a year in the United States. Well, Jim Willey in his newsletter priced economic output at the time of the American Revolution in 1776 in gold and did the same thing today. Well, back in 1775, American GDP per person stood at $1,883. That was 94 ounces of gold. Today, gross domestic product per person per capita is 42 ounces of gold. So see, it depends on the metric that you use. And one of the things that I talked about in the first segment of today's program is that it's important to use a two-bucket approach to managing your wealth. We live in an economy where paper wealth is required. We would encourage you to think about, in one bucket, having stable paper wealth. However, in the other bucket, real tangible wealth, we believe, is essential. And one of those bits of tangible wealth can be gold. There are others, but gold is certainly the most portable. We have more information on our website. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and get that information. Retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. There's resources there for free. That is our program for this week. Don't forget to tune in next week. I'll have Jay Taylor on as a special guest. We'll see you then.